Hello and welcome back to the ACSC podcast. My name is Charlie and thank you so much for the great feedback we've had currently from the first podcast which come out on Friday. It is brilliant to hear you guys are all enjoying it and we'll get straight into the next topic which is the potential Newcastle takeover and sort of talking about some of the ownership of the clubs in the Premier League. Hello guys, yeah, my name is Adil, obviously I am the co-host with Charles. Uh, just a quick thank you from me as well for the uh, listening on the first episode. But yeah, in terms of um, the topics today we've got for you, we've obviously, we're going to start off with the potential big Newcastle United takeover. So yeah, it's really massive news coming out over the last few weeks about the potential ownership being changed at Newcastle. Obviously, one of the major stats he's seeing is that the owners are meant to be worth 300 billion, which if you put it into terms compared to Man City, the closest rival is Sheikh Mansour, they're only worth 26 billion. So it's frightening the amount of money that they could be touched to be having yeah absolutely i mean obviously i think the the report surfaced from about the turn of the year the saudi i think who are the exact the ownership potentially i think it's the um the uh, saudi's public investment fund may know mover behind it that's yeah so they, that's correct. they're told to be potentially owning 80 percent of of the club the remaining 20 is probably reported to be given to maybe a 10 percent for amanda stavley who's obviously included in the pcp partnership and then the other 10 percent is with the uh, the billionaire ruben brothers so obviously it looks like the saudi um public fund are going to have a large percentage and obviously we've already got arabs in the premier league with manchester city so it could potentially bring that rivalry with man city straight away. i i can't really say anything other than that it's it's such a big thing and i think for a club like newcastle it is massive as a club in the premier league it sort of deserve some success recently after everything that's happened with Mike Ashley and the ownership side of things. It's it's always been hot topic with Mike Ashley involved. Obviously, you look at their spending, their record signing of thirty three million, which was last summer with Jolterton. Yeah, exactly that. I think when Mike Ashley took over in uh, well, fully take over in two thousand and seven. So it's coming up to well, it's been thirteen years of his ownership, and it's been nothing but controversial. I think the renaming of St James's Park to Sports Direct Arena. It just showed the business acumen that he's got rather than the emotional, passionate attachment with the Newcastle fans. I think if you ask the Newcastle fans or any other fan in the country, if there's one club in the Premier League that kind of deserves some sort of success and happiness that they haven't had in the last decade or so, it probably is Newcastle. Completely. And uh, if you look at some of the signs, there's not really been a huge investment of players. The amount of players they've had and sold, for example, £30 for Aosi Perez, 32 million for Sissoko, 25 million for Wijnaldum. They've had over 122 million on certain players, including Carroll. And if you look at the potential on the pitch, where has that money gone? Yeah, exactly that. I think just spot on what you were saying there with the the funds they've received. I mean, Carroll was 35 million. Even back how many years ago it was, it was a large sum. Newcastle have never really invested that back into the the, uh, the squad. I mean, Joe Linton, as you were saying was the club record signing for an estimated 33 million. It was undisclosed, to be honest. Now, that was only made in the summer just gone. Prior to that, Newcastle record signing was Michael Owen. Up until last year, Michael Owen was their record signing. You've got teams coming up from the Championship that are making more more record signings, that are investing a lot more. Um, Newcastle, by the looks of it, Mike Ashley has never really invested in the squad in order for them to... You know, be ambitious or even challenge. No, and I was also I've seen a stat here: the net spend over the last five years for Newcastle United is two hundred and seventy-three million, and they've actually made one hundred and sixty-six million on sites. So, 
it shows in contrast there that they're not really doing a lot to invest in the team. A lot of the money is being sold and going potentially to Mike Ashley. Yeah, exactly that. I think that is what the um, the whole aura is about around it. I think Mike Ashley is, it, it is a business to him. I think that for the last couple of years, maybe a few years, he's actually been potentially looking to sell the club. Um, and he's probably fallen out of love, Even not even that he was, ever was in love with the club. But it is something that he's potentially was looking at, and it looks like now with the uh, potential new ownership, I think it's for a report three hundred um, million that the purchase is going to happen. Um, it's not quite finalised yet. We must we must uh, say that as well. However, it does look like a deal that's quite close, and we will just look at what the new owners could potentially bring. Uh, a lot you're saying is what they want to bring, and I think it could be massive for them. You've already seen reports of Mauricio Pochettino is their head target, and if they can't get him, they're looking at Rafa Benitez coming back, which that already shows their intent to make Newcastle a massive club and a driving force in the Premier League. Yeah, exactly that. I think Mauricio Pochettino was linked with um, Manchester United, and he's, he's been linked with them for the last four or five years. Um, he's been linked with Real Madrid, Barcelona, so the absolute top clubs in European football. Now, Newcastle, if you linked Pochettino to him in the last couple of years, it'd be a report that'd be dismissed straight away. So it does show ambition from the new owners and it does show that they are willing to put funds into the club and they are willing to back potentially Pochettino and get a big manager. And it just shows how far they are willing to take the club. Yeah, and that's a huge thing for a club like Newcastle. And it'll be interesting to see if they're willing to expand on St James's Park. I've heard there may be some potential plans around that. Will they improve the club facilities? You sort of that plan in there to me is very similar to Sheikh Mansour at Man City, who, when he came into the club, has now basically made them the driving force in the Premier League. You look at their facilities, the training grounds are immaculate, the stadium is amazing. He needs, he's turned them into such a powerful club. Can these guys do the same for Newcastle? I think that is the, you've hit the nail on the head there. That's probably the most important thing surrounding this. The new owners or the new potential owners must invest into this Newcastle, the city. They've got to fall in love with the fans and have that report that you see certain clubs have with their fans they need to gel and click with their fans straight away Ashley's had that distance where he's been a businessman and then his fans on the other side as long as he can invest in the club so I think the forefront has to be the club's trading facilities they're outdated he, he will need to fully improve those you've got to invest in the club's academy now they're the cause and the base that he needs to set first or they need to set first should I say and if they can build from that then it, it builds them and sets a platform Future. That's the main thing. If he can build that relationship with the fans, Newcastle fans are so well respected. They love the club. They are a working city, very similar to how Liverpool is. They are die-hard fans and will worship that club. If you can get them behind you, there's no stopping the potential Newcastle could have. The only other side of things I can see is, even though they are worth 300 billion, it's not the same sort of period you didn't really have ffp as much when city come in and they invested hundreds of millions of pounds onto the pitch can newcastle really do that within the days of ffp at the moment exactly that i think the situation with newcastle like you were saying about their fans they don't have to worry about you know their fans having you know having passionate fans they've already fill up fifty-two thousand or so in the stadium so they've got the the passion already in the stadium now in terms of the ffp thing you raise I think I did see a report um, due to everything that's going on right now with the pandemic um, that the FFP could be relaxed a little bit. 
um, due to for the next year or so, maybe the next couple of years. It could potentially open up a, an opportunity for the potential new owners, where whilst they've got the opportunity while it's relaxed, it could let them invest into the club and invest however the way, way they want. The interesting side of it is if they are allowed to, like you're saying, if the rules are lax around FFP, they can invest millions of pounds onto the pitch, but that also opens up the doors for other teams to strength around them, etc. Arsenal, Chelsea, United, City, Liverpool, Leicester, Tottenham. All the top clubs around them, they want to try and compete. It opens a massive door for everyone as well. Yeah, exactly that. I think the situation, the, the importance is Newcastle, the ownership, can, they can come in, they can plunge millions into their club. The problem they'll have is, is that you'll have, if they can go out and get some big names. I think Antoine Griezmann was linked, one of them. I think they were linked with Paolo Dybala. I know it's, these are players that you never link with Newcastle. Now you get those players, it does not guarantee success. The, the importance is, I saw them linked with um, Aston Villa's John McGinn. I saw them linked with Burnley's Dwight McNeil. Personally, I would say, from my personal opinion, they're the probably kind of players you want to bring in initially, you know, John McGinn, Dwight McNeil. So you've got your young core British players. Now, if you bring them in through and then build that core and then add the extra couple of luxury players, that's a core for success. Rather than going out there and paying an extortionate wages for the very top players, if, they, if it goes wrong and they don't become, you know, a top 14 straight away, it leaves them into a, it's a it opens a whole kind of yeah, and I think that's the main thing they've got to be very careful about how they go about it. You don't want to invest, like you say, in the hundreds of millions of wages that come into things with certain players like Griezmann. Getting that core in the club of like the players you've mentioned would be so much more beneficial to them in the long run because then players are more grounded, first of all. They've got Premier League experience. They're the players you're going to need to build with. And like you said, you then add one or two over time. I've seen a few links of Edison Cavani was one of them that they've been looking at getting some. I think that's a player that's a bit more realistic. If you've got the money, he's old. I'd say he's 32, I think Cavani's 33. He's coming towards the end of his career. He's coming towards the end. He's had his, what you could say, success in Europe. Now's a chance to sort of have that impact. If he come to a club like Newcastle, he could become the main man, a, a figurehead for Newcastle. I think whilst, I think Cavani wants an interesting one for me, I think he's on the wrong side of 30 now. I think the new ownership, when they come into Newcastle now, they must, it has to be a project. It's not a two-year thing. It's not a three-year thing. It has to be a 10-year thing. It has to be a long-term project. And whilst I agree with the Cavani links, which is you do need that one extravagant leader player, bringing through a couple of young players, signing players under the age of 25, along with one or two maybe late 28-age players, 28, 29, then you've got the best of their years, 29, 30, 31. Cavani coming in, he's definitely on the decline in his career. Now, the situation with Cavani is he's not exactly been, I mean, we've seen how good he can be. But Newcastle will have to pay him, you know, ridiculous wages. I'm not sure, would, would the hunger be there for a player like him? I mean, being the main man at Newcastle, that itself can be a motivation, which he hasn't got a PSG because he's not the main man. So it could work. Personally, Cavani, for me, for Newcastle, is a no-no, and I just don't think they should be targeting that kind of player. It's a, it's a hot topic, and I think it is always going to draw so many comparisons to things. It's open up for debate, and at the end of the day, the owners will make their decisions. And uh, like you said, it's not a complete closed deal. So many things could happen shortly. Uh, it could all fall apart in a matter of minutes. We've seen deals like that happen all the time. Yeah, exactly that. I think exactly what's going on right now. You know, there's so much uncertainty. 
you're not 100% sure when's what's, what's going to happen. Even the transfer, if the new ownership come in, can they go and buy players? Because, you know, there's reports that no big clubs will be making any significant signings. Even though the Newcastle potential owners are very wealthy, is it feasible and is it, you know, liable and, and acceptable to go and spend two, three hundred million pounds on million pounds even on players? And is that the right financial move to make? It is something that Newcastle will have to think about. But the the main thing is, it is exciting times for the club and it's exciting times for the fans. Exactly that. And it sort of links into the next topic we, we're going to discuss. It was a, one of our viewers suggested this to me, so I thought we'd look into it. He's, uh, he asked, how has Chelsea improved since Abramovich? Because obviously it's this year, I think it's 15 years since Chelsea won their first Premier League under Roman Abramovich. And you've sort of seen the massive rise Chelsea have had. The Looking at the stats, Roman come in in June 2003. Uh, it's nearly 20 years since he's been involved. They've had six division titles in their history, five of them since he's come in, eight FA Cups, five since he took over, five League Cups, three since he took over, a Champions League and two Europa Leagues, both in the club's history. The 16 majors honours, Almost one every year since he's took over. So you can't argue with the impact correct ownership and done correctly can have. I think, I mean, the situation with Abramovich is he's took over a club that hasn't had much of a history. All due respect, you know, Chelsea are a massive club right now. They are a club that are competing at the very high level in European football. Since Roman Abramovich has come in, he has completely transformed the club. Even though, you know, we'll get to the negative side in terms of loans and how he's not been there for 18 months or whatever it might be. Roman Abramovich, for me, is an example of a modern owner who has proven success in the Premier League. Like you said, he's come in out of 22 honours in their club's history. 16 have been won under his ownership. That's, that was all done in the last 17 years. Now, Chelsea, you wouldn't even think about winning the Champions League. You wouldn't even think about winning Premier Leagues. That's all been done under his reign. Of course, he's put funds into the club. But if you're asking the question, have Chelsea improved since his reign? For me, it's not even... No, it's not. And I think more than anything, it's not just on the pitch where they've won had success. Financially off the pitch, Chelsea are now worth over £2 billion. When Abramovich bought the club, they were worth around £400 million in 2003. The club has nearly gone up five times the amount of worth they have. The pulling power and the way he's run the club, you can't argue with that success he's having. It's arguably there are downsides, like the fact they've had 28 managers in the club history. 16 of them have been during his reign. So that's nearly a manager every season. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, if you look at it, you know, Chelsea, like you said, are worth over 2 billion. Now, the reality, when he bought the club for 400 million, you know, he has plunged funds into the club i mean they've spent the outlays i think i saw it over seven eight hundred million pound of just transfers on players so he has definitely brought in players i mean they've got the most expensive goalkeeper in the world right now kepa who was signed for a record 72 million again reported 72 million british pounds now that does make him the most expensive goalkeeper in the world and that shows that signing was made only just in the summer gone last year abramovich might not be there in the club at the moment or he might not be as interested He's still investing and he's still putting money in the club. Um, and like I say, if the club is worth over £2 billion, and that is p- 
purely down to it. Like you were touching there, I don't know if it's not the lack of interest. I still think I've seen reports where the chairman has come out and said that behind the scenes, the brother match still loves the club. He's there, involved in the daily deals. Obviously, it's a whole fine wind in 2018. His UK visa was revoked, and since then, he's not been back. I know there was talk he was trying to get an Israeli citizenship to come back in, but that's all gone a bit quiet. And obviously, since then, I know there was plans for a new stadium that's been cancelled. So there is the argument you can see that people saying he's not as interested in the club. But I don't know. I can't see that. He's still investing millions of pounds into players on the pitch. And I do think he generally has a passionate love for the club. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. I think, like we said, since he's come in, there's not been a season where he showed a lack of ambition. They've spent every summer. I mean, some have gone by, they haven't spent, but there's a transfer ban. I mean, people sometimes forget, you know, the facts are there that Chelsea, with the ban, they cannot buy a player. I mean, they even had Pulisic signed the January before the ban to kind of make sure that they have that player ready for the next season. And obviously, even though he hasn't exactly had the biggest impact, but again, they spent over 50 million on him. I think Abramovich, interest in the club for me is something that's paramount and he's still shown a lot of it. There has been reports he wants to potentially sell up. Um, if he did sell up, you know, he would 100% make make money on his re- return. I don't argue with that, and but I can't see him wanting to set up. I think he's going for a different direction. Obviously, with Frank Lampard coming in, I think it's sort of changing. And I don't know if that was forced upon him with the transfer ban, but I think the impact Frank Lampard more than has had in his first season is huge. For the first time in the club's, I wouldn't say probably history, but under a Bravamatch's reign, you're having to see where they've got to look at their youth and bring them through. There's at least six youth players who have played under 23 football and below, given the opportunity season. Look at the likes of Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, the impact they're having in the first team. Yeah, exactly that. I think you're 100% spot on. Tammy Abraham is, I think, what is he, in the top five in the top in the top scorers in the league this season. Mason Mount is, you know, being called up to the England squad. And he, to me, for now, ahead of he's ahead of James Madison. He's ahead of Jack Grealish, even, in that position where, on a consistent level, he's performed really well. Maybe not Jack Grealish, actually. Madison more so. And, and that's through Frank Lampard. He's brought through the youth. I mean, even Reese James, who's you know established himself almost at right back now. It is a different a way that Abramovich has gone about it. And I think I have ad- admiration for it, to be honest. I think Frank Lampard, you know, a club legend, a young manager with no real pre- pedigree. I mean, he's done well at Derby. But he's come, you know, if you look at who they had before, they've had Carlo Ancelotti, Jose Mourinho, you know, Luis Felipe Scolari. They've had some R- Rafa Benitez. Antonio Conte, these are big, big names in terms of manage, managers. Frank Lampard is still a nobody in terms of managers. But if you, you know, if like what he's done is he's gone a different way. They're investing in the youth. He's gone through a, like a, a more sustainable style of management now, and it could bring success. To it's interesting you're saying that. It's obviously, you look at the stats, they're currently fourth in the Premier League. Didn't have the chance to spend in the summer, which is obviously huge. And you look at the teams above, like United, Arsenal, Spurs, who all had the opportunity. Arsenal itself, we spent hundreds. Nicola Pepe cost us a record fee. I think it was about seventy-two million. I think for us bringing players up, we should be above them if you're going looking about that things. So I think you can't argue with the impact they're having. And I think it'll be interesting to see in the summer when they've got the chance to spend. Obviously, they've bought Hakim Ziyech to arrive in the summer, are they going to go back to their old ways of buying players who are obviously in their peak, or are they going to carry on to invest in the youth? Again, that's an interesting one, to be honest. I mean, Hakim Ziyech is a player who's who's had success in Ajax. 
it's almost a player where I've always been surprised where why he hasn't been linked and more clubs haven't been in for him. You know, the success with Ajax last season, reaching the semi-finals, he was very vital to that. I think he was at the forefront of their success, along with Matthias De Ligt, who's at, you know, Juventus now. You've got Frankie de Jong, where is he? Barcelona. Hakim Ziyech has chosen Chelsea, and in all fairness, Chelsea seemed like the only real club that showed a genuine interest, and obviously paid, again, I don't think it was more than £35 million, which in this market is not a lot. And he's a player who's in his mid-20s now, 26 I think he is now. So he's got his peak years ahead of him. It, it, I personally think it's a, a good signing for Chelsea. As long as they don't, you know, like you said, go back and invest into ready-made players and keep doing that. As long as they have the balance of bringing players through and keep Mason Mount on the team and potentially Billy Gilmore coming through and, you know, Tammy Abraham. And then you've got the mixture with Hakim Ziyech and maybe one or two others. I think there's the link with Jadon Sancho. Would, which would be a remarkable signing. If they can keep the balance and trust in Frank, there's success there. I think they're, they're a club that is going to have a lot of success in the future. And I think, in a way, it's all down to Roman Abramovich is coming in and revolutionising the way the club works. And then if you sort of look on the other balance, we can link this into my club, Arsenal, where you sort of look at Stan Kroenke and his ownership of the club. Stan first came into Arsenal in 2007 when he bought 12.19% of the club. Then increased that to 29.99 percent in 2008, which in our board that is the highest you could have unless you then take on more. He then took that option in 2011 when he bought out Danny Frisman and Lady Nina Bracewell-Smith and valued the club at 731 million. In June 2018, he then made an offer to our second shareholder, who was Alicia Osmanov, uh, and brought him out for I think it was around 600 million. So values the club at 1.8 billion. If you look at the impact he's sort of had. On the pitch, success hasn't been the best because he's not really invested in that side of things. Financial side of things, the club has done very well. We're a very financial club. But like for me, Kroenke owns six other professional sports teams, most notably the Los Angeles Rams in the NFL. They recently got to the Super Bowl in 2018. Are we just uh, clocking his portfolio that is bringing in money in from the, how marketable the Premier League is to fund his other teams. Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's a difficult one. We are football fans, and as fans, you know, you want success for your very own teams, and you want to see, you know, the best players in the, in the leagues and everything. Now, the situation is, the owners of these Premier League clubs, they're businessmen. That's the, that's the facts. You know, every single owner of the Premier League, they are looking for success in terms of profits. You know, of course, you know, success and bringing trophies for, for fans which brings in a lot of money, is a, a forefront. However, you've got to think about it. Stan Kroenke is a businessman. Arsenal, what he's done with Arsenal, you're, like you said, you're a very financial club. You know, now the Arsenal stadium is obviously just being paid off. You're valued at almost almost £2 billion now. So they are business people. You know, like you said, he's obviously got other sports teams, you know, Los Angeles Rams. There is a portfolio there. But like, like any other, Arsenal just another business looking for a bit more success and a bit more of a profit. Yeah, and I think it's what we sort of touched on with Abramovich, where you were saying, and potentially the new Newcastle, is building that rapport with the fans is so key. And I think half the problem is Stan Kroenke's never done that. If you look at the... I admit, Arsenal fan base is very toxic, as it is. Obviously, look at the way it all dealt with Arsene Wenger, but he's never, ever had the backing of the fans, which is half the problem. Any poor performances or anything where you're not hitting the top four, it all then stems back to Kroenke. 
And I can see why people do that, but I can also understand where you're saying. As a financial side, we are a business. Football is a business. They've got to make money. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, the thing is with Stan Kroenke is an interesting one because if you look at how prominent he is, considering the shares he owns in the club, he's not as active and he doesn't put himself out there. And the, the dialogue with the Arsenal fan is not there. Josh is obviously now... What is it? Is Josh now the... What is Josh at Arsenal now? Josh, I don't think he's officially been announced as the sort of director, but he's now taken a more forefront. And I think he's part of the new head side of things with Adu, who's the director of football at the club as such. Him and Josh work well and are always at the games now. So I think Josh has sort of always had more of an interest in football because he's always sort of been brought up in England. So I think he sort of understands the fans' ideas. And I think if Josh is in the lead line, I think in the coming years, going to be given Arsenal to control, I think that is where we may start to see a bit of a different impact and more success and more of a relationship with the board. Exactly that. I think, like you said, if Josh, if he is the, you know, taking a bit more of a lead role in the club now and he's at the forefront and he's got to build that rapport with the fans, I mean, if you look at Stan, who's he's got, like you said, like I was saying earlier, he's got the last shares in the club, but he hasn't, he's not as prominent. His dialogue with the fans is, is poor. And it, that's what leads to the unrest among the Arsenal fans, because sometimes you're not aware of, right, what is our direction? How do, what do we want to achieve? You know, if he comes out and says, right, puts a statement out saying, this is what we want to achieve. I know it's not, it's very easy to say that, but as, if he can give a promise or even give the Arsenal fans a little bit of hope in terms of, right, that's what we want to achieve in the next few years. This is our goal. This is what we want to be competing at. This is the level we want to be playing at. That straight away draws in the Arsenal fans. And that's something he hasn't done. And like we've seen over the years with many owners, as soon as you fall out with your your fans, it's a car crash. Waiting. And that's where you can sort of link it into Liverpool. Obviously, Liverpool in 2007, George Gillette and Tom Hicks, I think, Anyone probably in football knows these two names. They brought the ownership of Liverpool 16 years after being owned by David Moores, who was a die-hard Liverpool fan. They paid £174 million for the shares of the club. They vowed to pay off £45 million in debt and put £215 million into the revamp of Anfield. None of that really happened straight away. Things fell apart quickly between both Tom Hicks and George Gillette. Gillette wanted to eventually try and leave the club. Tom Hicks vote his move, wouldn't let it happen. And interestingly, in 2008, if things could have gone how it could have potentially happened, Sheikh Mansour made a bid of £500 million for Liverpool Football Club, but it was rejected by both of them. And to me, that could have changed the way Liverpool's direction could have gone, even in 2008. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting one, personally. I think George Gillette and Tom Hicks was an accident. It, I mean, albeit, you know, they, you know, they paid off the 45 million or vowed to even pay off the 45 million pound in debt, but it was an accident fully in every single way. It wasn't a success. And the Sheikh Mansour links, obviously, when he made the bid, from my personal point of view, and as well as many other Liverpool fans that I've seen, and I can't speak for all of them, Sheikh Mansour's potential bid for Liverpool would have been an absolute disaster. Now, the reason I say that, as, as you know, we all want the best players in the world. We all want our ownership to put millions into clubs, millions into new managers, pay two, three hundred thousand pounds a week in wages that Manchester United, Manchester City can pay. That is simply not Liverpool Football Club. You know, the club is built on a platform of 
players bringing through, you know, Michael Owen coming through, Stephen Gerrard, people that have come through the academy, you know, we've always bought players who are not quite at their peak, then we've kind of made them. You think at a kind of project right now, of course, you've got Virgil van Dijk and Alisson, but you look at our front three, not a single one of them won more than 50 million. So the club has a a platform and have a way of doing things that works for Liverpool Football Club. It's, it's something that the fans like as well. I personally wouldn't have wanted Sheikh Mansour in the club, you know, coming in, investing straight away. Potentially, yeah, if he came in within maybe 2011, 2012, we would have won the league and maybe the year after and potentially been a, a bit more success than we potentially had. But then obviously when Christian Persler was brought in, um, after the debt obviously reached like a, a soaring level, that caused many like internal battles. And I think in 2010, was it in October 2010, that Fenway Sports Group, who obviously our ownership group now, bought the club for 300 million. Now, if you see the way they've done the business, they've come in, you know, they've paid off all the debts, they've had great fan interaction, you know, they haven't promised straight away that we're going to be, we're going to win the league next year. What they promised is sustainability. They promised that the club is going to, you know, it's a long term project, they're in it for the long haul. They want to bring Liverpool back to its successful glory days. And look, it was 10 years since they've been brought in. 10 years or now in 2020, since their ownership, Liverpool are reaving with the re rewards now. I mean, look, Champions League holders, last year winners. Premier League is, it, is inevitable. The success is there now, and it's success that their platform that they've built without having to go out and spend three, four hundred million in one transfer window or 200 million pound on a player you know like i say it's a sustainability it's a business at the end of the day but it was a a, a project that they said that they set out 10 years ago and now they and it is clear to see the rewards are coming like you're saying you're pretty much champions elect this season current champions league holders which obviously now have been knocked out this season but it's not just on the pitch obviously the anfield has now been expanded and i believe there's another expansion potentially happening Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, yeah, so obviously at the moment we were at forty-four thousand six hundred. I think it was. Took it up to fifty-four thousand. The lovely new stand, which is a, a, an amazing stand to look at, and there there was plans for it to be an extra seven thousand seats to take it to sixty-one thousand. That's the Anfield Road end, the stand they want to uh, redevelop. Now that's been put on hold. Um, they are the owners are adamant it's not due to the the financial implications that we've got right now. It's more of a you know a how you meant to get all the workers and how you meant to get people in to do the actual job exactly. So they have delayed that by twelve months. But the plans in terms of redeveloping the stadium is still there. The new training facility, which was meant to be ready for uh, summer this year, is again that's been pushed back until potentially next year. But they've done it right. Personally, from again, from a Liverpool fan point of view, I couldn't be more happy with how FSG have gone about it. You know, again, to them, we have to appreciate it is a business and they will be looking to, you know, to make money. They bought Liverpool for 300 million. Liverpool are now worth 1.7 billion. And over the next couple of years, I'm sure that will surpass 2 billion very easily. Um, again, you know, they, they've built into putting money into training facilities. They've they've trusted Jurgen Klopp. That's the main thing. I mean, if you look at Jurgen Klopp, they've they've given him. He's in his fourth or fifth year now as manager. So they've given him trust. They've given him the money and the backing. And now you've got the. And that's the key thing. Like you're saying, the club will continue to rise with your on-field success. You invested in the squad wisely. I think. Obviously, I think that's down to Jurgen Klopp as well. You looked at the centre half position. 
you realised you guys needed a centre-half, you went out and signed Van Dijk. May have been a world record fee, but look at success and stability it's brought to your back line. You've not invested stupidly, you've not just bought for the sake of it, you've invested where it's needed. And I think, as a club, you've done everything correct, and it is great to see ownership work correctly like that. Yeah, exactly that. I think, like you said, from from the nightmare with Hicks and, and Gillette, sorry, um, FSG coming in, they've done it right. I mean, you are, you're completely right in saying the where we needed to strengthen. We looked at our defence, probably we'd go 2-3-0 up in a game, and I'd sit there for the last half an hour and think, there's a potential if they get one back, we're going to crumble. Jürgen Klopp saw that. We went out and spent £75 million on Virgil van Dijk. We spent £60 million on Alisson. Two players that you know have come in and have completely transformed the team. Virgil van Dijk is unquestionably, in my opinion, the best centre-back in the world. And then you've got Alisson, who's in the top two, three goalkeepers in the world. Now, even when Alisson was signed, he wasn't the top two, three goalkeeper in the world. Van Dijk, when he signed, there, I remember seeing many fans saying, £75 million for Van Dijk. What's going on? Southampton, you know, they're ripping you off. Not a single person since then, for the last few months, have even questioned that. No, and that's the key thing, is everyone had his entire opinion, but Jurgen Klopp obviously saw something and wanted Van Dijk for them reasons. You were linked for him long before you ended up buying him. I think it was a few C transfer windows you were always linked around it. Yeah, exactly that. And then I think then we had a little tapping up kind of situation, which happens a lot in football. We came out and apologised to Southampton. But then we, we did that so we can continue to build the rapport that we have with them. And then ultimately, in January, after the, the kind of apology came, we, we got our man and he's obviously brought so much success to Liverpool now. Um, and we are, you know, getting the reward for it. Yeah, exactly. And I think for today, that sort of wraps everything up on our chat about ownership. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, just a look, quick note, adding on. Uh, at the end of this episode, we are potentially releasing a special episode this weekend. Uh, so please, everyone, stay tuned for that. Uh, so thank you very much for myself, Charlie, and my co-host, Adil. And we'll see you guys next week.